in order for us to go forward, we need to, we need to turn around and see where we came from. Otherwise, we're not going to know where we're going. This is a Hawaii Rising podcast special. I'm Kenji Cataldo. I'm Suyuno Amos. In today's special episode, we're bringing you an interview with a legend of the Hawaiian movement. Uncle Walter Ritty has had a huge impact both on his home island of Molokai and across Hawaii. In 1989, Uncle Walter founded Huiokuapa to begin restoring local ia, or fish ponds, on Molokai. Thirty years later, now under the leadership of Hanohano Naehu, Huiokuapa is restoring its sixth fish pond, Ohalahala. Hano and Maile, the head kia'i loko and program director at Huiokuapa, were our first guests on the show back in October. If you haven't heard that episode, you should go check it out. In June, after joining Huiokuapa for a workday at Ohalahala, we headed over to Keavanui Fish Pond to meet with Uncle Walter. Thank you so much for joining us. We're here with Uncle Walter Riddy at uh, Keavanui Fish Pond. Uncle Walter, could you just start by telling us a little bit about where we are and then introduce yourself however you'd like? Yeah, well, my name is Walter Riddy and we're on the island of Molokai, first of all. And we're at the Ahupua of Kaamola. And at Kaamola, there's a fish pond called Keavanui which um, belongs to the next Ahupua'a, which is Kiavanui. It's a little bit complicated situation from the past, but the, the fish pond is about 50 acres. If you tell people that you're working in a fish pond, people will see a small little thing, um, and then when they see this 50-acre pond, you realize this is not just a small little thing, but this is a huge pond that was created some 600 years ago um, to feed this Ahupua in the first place. And then the coastline of Molokai is dotted with fish ponds. So it's not one fish pond to feed everybody on the island um, because that puts stress on the ponds. All of the ponds are like naturally productive. And I think that's the trick that we're trying to learn here at Kiavinui is how do you feed people in a natural state, um, not the way that they taught us um, 20 years ago. Um, when we first came here, they wanted to know what was our business plan? How are we going to make money in order to pay for the lease, for pay for this, for pay? So we got caught up in that, that we were actually going to raise things to feed people according to a business plan. And after a while, we began to realize that's not what this is all about. So slowly, we began to realize how important these ponds are. We're just scratching the surface. And every year, we get excited about what we're learning. Um, we're learning that it was self-sufficient. Um, the moon would come in and give us oxy fresh oxygenated water because the walls were permeable. 
the water go in and the water go out, so you exchange the water. So the, the pond stays clean and oxygenated. And what we didn't realize was that not only were we feeding ourselves, but we're actually helping to stock the reefs. Because we thought that once the fish came in, you would eat them and then just keep bringing babies in and then keep eating them. But what they did was they, they let the fish go in and out. So especially when they, all of the ripe females, when it was time for them to give birth, they wanted to go out into the deep. They would all gather at the makaha. And you could harvest them if you wanted to because the males would follow the females. Um, but if you let the females go out, then they give birth. And because the fresh water smells are coming out, they come back in. They know their safety. So we didn't know all of those things until we started watching and seeing how things work. So we're scratching the surface about how to feed your islands. Uh, because we, we know that there are a lot more Hawaiians here um, than people thought. And we didn't have any barges or, or jet planes or anything. So we were really self-sufficient. And that's the lesson that we're trying to learn. And how did you first um, come to uh, Kavanui? Yeah, how did that sort of kuleana of restoring the, you know, building the kuapa and then restoring this, how did that come to you? The key to our generation was not the University of Hawaii. The key to our generation was our kupuna. So one day the kupuna, we all gathered with the kupuna um, near the shoreline here, and we were picking ohe ohe seeds to make lays, and we were talking. And they started telling us that this was a really important place, and some of the, the old stories of this place. And at the same time, Kamehameha schools, the, the landowners, um, decided that they were land rich and money poor. So they brought in a trustee that his job was to make some money for the school. So one of the schemes was to turn this place into a tourist industry. So that sandbar out there was going to be with hotels on it. They were gonna make a marina in the harbor over here. And they were gonna partner with the next developers in the next Ahupua'a that was gonna do the same thing. They got permission to dredge the reef. Um, it was the only dredge permit in Hawaii. So they fell apart. We went to testify because the kupuna told us this is not for development over here. We went to Maui to testify against Kamehameha schools, and we killed the project. And then we ended up um, using this place as a community resource instead of a development to make monies for, for the school. So that was an interesting twist in that, in that whole situation. And I think this whole side of the island was really eyed as being where a tourist was gonna come. But because of what we're doing here, um, we were able to protect this whole eastern side of, of Molokai. 
Who are some of the kupuna that you feel really influenced you in your work? We have four kupuna that went everywhere with us, all the way to Kahoolawe. So it was, it was because of them that we really defeated the United States military. So the general of them all was Auntie Clara Koo. She walked around with her cane and tapped you, love taps, a little bit harder when you were doing something wrong. She was authoritarian. And then Auntie Mary Lee was the total opposite. She was the one that hugs you and holds you and comforts you. And Lani Kapuni, Auntie Lani Kapuni was our musician. She sang all of the songs. So those three were like the three musketeers, you know, they, they went with us everywhere. So they were the ones that sort of, if they smiled after we were, do, we were doing something or after we did something, then we knew we did something right. And if they frowned, uh, we didn't do it. <laughs> So that was the kind of guidance that we had. So this generation now, they, they went out and got their own information, which is really important, using the university as a tool. In the past, it, that wasn't a tool that we could use. We were kept out from the university. So that's a huge difference in our generations moving forward and this generation that's moving forward now. Yeah, um, could you share a little bit about, I guess from your perspective, what this transition has been now from your generation to um, say now like that Hui Okuapa has been passed on to a new generation. Um, what has that transition been like from yeah. your perspective? Um, if we start with um, Kaha Olave, that was a, a huge shift in the Hawaiian community. You know, it's part of a renaissance of sorts where people started singing Hawaiian songs and really getting into the hula and starting interest in the language. And we went there and took on the United States of America's military force. And the Hokulea decided that they were gonna go sail without compasses. So all of that um, was happening. So that was, we were really, really dependent on our elders. So this generation that's coming up now, they're out there finding their own answers. And people like myself are getting kind of slow and, and older. But when Mauna Kea happened, that that really boosts my, my hope. I saw when I went up there, this, this black lava field with nothing growing on it. And then after a month, two months went by, I saw like a village in the middle of a lava field that was being run by young people and they covered everything. I mean, you could actually stay up there and, and not suffer, you know, and, and do whatever you're doing. There was one huge vision up there. And then we didn't have ceremonies when we were doing our thing. 
um, and we didn't have the language when we were fighting for Kaha'olawe. But up at Mauna Kea, wow, the three times a day, rain will shine, you know, hot or cold. There were ceremonies and language to the point where I saw other Pacific nations that during our time, they didn't bother with us. We were like Americans. They couldn't relate to us. But they were coming and doing traditions and exchanging languages and music and dancing. It was like a total shift. And not only a shift, but a progressive shift. Progressive in the sense that we were getting more and more into our language culture, history, and all of that. And all because we had this yearning to protect something. The same yearning we had on Kaha'olawe, to protect something. So for me, it was a, a giant step. I don't know if the giant step forward or a giant step backwards to go forward. Um, so that really sends the message that in order for us to go forward, we need to, we need to turn around and see where we came from. Otherwise, we're not going to know where we're going. So that was a huge lesson. And that really perked me up a bit. You know, it's like, yeah, this next generation, they got them. So there was hope in the air. Um, so you mentioned that some of those kupuna that you named, they went with you to, to, even to Kaho'olawe, or they were part of that. Can you describe, I guess, how it felt leading up to you know, the first crossing and landing, and um, I guess what that experience was like for you? You know, the, the best experiences came when we were struggling. And we had no money, we had no organization, we had no Facebook. You know, it's like, we didn't know how we were gonna do this thing. So we just, we just went ahead. And it was just amazing how we would just go and things would happen to allow us to do what we wanted to do. I'll give you an example. We decided we were gonna go to Kauai to tell our story to Kauai. Why? I don't know. So you have to find an airplane. And we had no monies for airplanes. And then there was this airline called Brandt Air. And it was this Hawaiian guy. And he would fly us for free. So we would talk, talk, talk. And then we say, OK, let's go. And then the day before, we would be getting ready to go. And we would go. And the kupuna knew where we were going, and they would always prepare themselves. And they would always be carrying their, their big bags, survival kits. So we would end up somewhere. And you know, it's like, OK, it's dinner time. you know. And they would bust open their bag, and they would have all the raw stuff, all the Hawaiian salt, some canned goods. Survival kits to the max. Mm -hmm. And that was like teaching us lessons. You know, it's like, yeah, you can go do what you're going to do, but you need to prepare. You need to get. 
And, and when we went to Maui, we, had, we didn't have a place to stay on Maui. And, you know, we would, the airplanes that we were using is what you pray before you go and you pray that how oh, we made it. You know, one of, one of those planes that you're just not sure if you're going to make it or not. But we had to climb down the, cl the cliff on Maui and find a sandy beach. And same thing, you would bust out all of the, the food items and stuff like that. So it was, it was just like learning lessons. And I'm not quite sure how, how the word got out. You know, like when we got to Kauai, we were all at the airport after we, we landed and we were like, okay, where are we going? And everybody, I don't know where we're going, you know. So the guy listened to us talk and he go, oh, you know, there's a good place down here, you know, by the beach, you guys can go. And I'm talking like about 20, 20 people, 30 people. And then, well, how are we gonna go? And this guy goes, oh, I'm off duty right now. I can get my bus and, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, same thing on Maui, you know, it's like, my Uncle Robert was a bus driver. He, he took us all to places we had to go. And it just, it was almost, almost scary, you know, how things would just fall into place and allow us, it's almost like the water opening or whatever, and you just go. And it, and, and it happened, you know. And then how do, we, how do we tell people our story? You know, we yell at the cars going by, or how do you do that? And the guy goes, hey, you know, we can't get Medina Stadium, you know? And oh yeah, and all one of them gonna be over here, you know? And so it's a, they start playing music. There's gonna be music and people come. And that's what was happening on the different islands. It was, it was the music that allowed us to tell our story. And it was the people that was pushing Hawaiian music again. So our two things kind of meshed together. It was like the honey that brought the people. We didn't have television. We didn't have, you know, websites. We didn't have all of those fancy things. But we had the music. It was the pipe piper would play his music, and people would come, and we would tell them the story of Kahawalabe. And that's how the words spread out. Were you um, there for that first makahiki ceremony that happened again on Kahawalabe? I don't know, there was all kinds of ceremonies. On Makahiki, no. Um, we were doing our own Makahiki here on Molokai. So our goal was to get the next generation involved. Kaha'olawe's goal was to be more spiritual in what they were doing. So there was two different things going on. So Emmett and them, were the, they were more interested in the, in the spiritual aspect of the Makahiki. And over here, we're more interested in getting the young people away from football and basketball and, and trying to introduce this new. And we didn't think it was going to work. But it's been going on for 40 years now. And it's the biggest event on Molokai. <laughs> of course, Hano and Ua, they were like the big champions in the Makahiki games. Where would that take place on Molokai? We, 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 right in Kaunakakai town. We transferred a whole park into a big arena. And before all of the elementary schools would have like, they would find their champions. So only the champions would come into the arena. So the schools would go through. I remember going, calling all the teachers to meetings and 
you know, we're going to do this. And, oh, man, we're already up to a year with subjects and all this kind of stuff. There's no time for us to be doing this. But it, it took into the schools, and it just it became something really important in the schools. That one year, we tried to say, OK, we're not going to do it this year. We're all burnt out. Oh, the kids got really angry at us. <laughs> they revolted on us. So we were steady for 40 years. They didn't miss a year. So there's different makahiki, um, I guess, intent. So I didn't, we didn't, I didn't attend the ones on, on Kaolawe. So you're talking about makahiki, but I'm wondering about, you know, uh, how, what do you think makes it successful to get the next generation involved in any kind of effort? That's a really, really good question. You know, to answer that question, you got to ask yourself, what happened at Mauna Kea? You know, that's like the modern day renaissance of sorts. I mean, what I saw up there was, was amazing, just amazing. And you don't know how, why, you know, it's like, I don't think you can really plan. I mean, you can do little things, and then all those little things become a big thing. But to have a big thing like what happened on Mauna Kea is, you know, something has to line up. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but boy, I was up there for a couple months, and it was like amazing what was going on up there. And, but it, it, it couldn't have happened if it wasn't for all of these people that were deep into their cultural practices, all the different, and they all came together to form this city or, or village and using all of the modern techniques, you know, because it was, it was like running, running a whole city up there. I mean, it was amazing. It wasn't just one aspect of it. It was how they all blended together. And the, the powers that be came to destroy it, lock it down, you know, arrest you or whatever. They couldn't. So it was like, for me, that was like, Wow, that's a huge step forward in the Hawaiian community. So and that was because they were using more tools than we ever had, you know, to do whatever they did. But they got the, all of the islands in Hawaii somehow were singing their songs and chanting their chants. So that was, that was amazing. And I don't know how that happens. <laughs> But every time there's a need, it'll happen. Um, so I, I also wanted to ask about the time that you spent living in Pelikunu. Mm. I, um, I was reading in the Nawahinekoa book, um, the section uh, with, with your wife. And she described a little bit um, about sort of going and making a life there for, was it two, two years? Two years. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe what that was like? Yeah, um, really short. Those were the best years of my life. I mean, you know, I did not want to leave that valley. I mean, it was like perfect. George Helm and I used to go around um, talking to elders, seeking out kupuna, asking them 
questions. And one of the questions we kept asking is, where did the mana come from? How do you find the mana? What is the mana? Because Molokai, we had some really heavy-duty kupuna that did some heavy-duty things that we couldn't explain. So we went around. He was working for Hawaiian Airlines, so I used to fly free with him. So if we went to one kupuna and they told us a story about something, and we said, oh, I don't think that can happen, you know. So we'd talk to them, and then we'd say, well, who else knows about this? And they would give us a name. And so we would follow that. If there's like at least three kupuna who told us the same story, then we would say, oh, yeah, that's true, man. So we went around. Uh, talking to a lot of different kupuna. Um, so jo George was, um, he was, he was the learner. He would read Jung and philosophers and those kinds of things. He loved doing that kind of stuff. I was just a hunter. You know, like I'm gonna feed my family, I gotta go out there, shoot a deer and feed my family. So, so he and I, we had the same goal at that point in time, and for different reasons. So after we went out and we talked to a lot of kupuna, then we started getting the same stories over and over. And I decided that I wasn't satisfied. So I said to myself, well, where did our kupuna go when they first came on their canoes? I don't think they came Kanakakai in the hot sun, no water, and I, they went into the valleys. And that's where they, they, they grew in these valleys. And how they grew in these valleys allowed them to survive. So I figured, okay, if I'm gonna get any more answers, I'm gonna have to go to where, where they went first. And that's why I went into Pelikunu with my family. A lot of people got mad with me that I was, like running away from everything and abandoning the, the whole movement and all of that. But I was looking for more answers than I could find out here. So I went, the first thing I did was make a huge mistake. I went in in January, rainy season, mud, storms. You know, it was a bad time to go in there, but we survived. And after two years, I was like in heaven. I would get up. Every morning, I would get up and say to myself, what do I want to do today? And I was like, what do I want to do today? What, how do I feel today? If I do this, we're not going to have something to eat tonight. If I do that, there's a consequence. If I do this, it's my own way of, so by the time I make my decision, I'm really okay with that decision. And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good, so I go out there. And you have to work pretty hard, but it's not really work. So the valley walls are like this. So the sun comes over, and then it goes down. So you got short days. So during the short time, you're working really hard. And you have the ability to look up whenever you want to look up. You know, you don't have to worry about getting into a crash if you're not, you know, looking at the right way when you're driving or whatever. You just, 
So what that does is it gets you in tune with, with nature. I mean, all day long, you're with nature. And because of these two mountains, I would watch the clouds go by over and in the front of the valley. And without even knowing it, you begin to recognize all of the different clouds. And you begin to realize that nature has certain laws that it follows. And you cannot, you cannot break those laws. If you jump off the cliff, it's not maybe you're going to die. You're going to hit those rocks and you're going to die. You know, I mean, there's certain laws that, so those laws, we don't understand all of those laws, but the clouds form according to certain laws that nature has, whether it's wind, heat, whatever. So if you can read the clouds, then you can understand a little bit about nature, because nature is talking to you via the clouds. And I wasn't in there long enough to understand the whole language, but I could tell when it's going to be bad weather, good weather, or different kinds of things. So it's, it's just being with nature that, that you can learn how to live with nature. So, and I was, we had everything we needed. In the beginning, we had a lot of rice and canned goods and all that, but after a while, we began to understand how to supplement without, with just living in the valley. So that was, that was a huge lesson, and I'm, I'm really sad that I couldn't stay there. I could have. It was a stupid reason that I left. Um, I was listening, we had a transistor radio. I was listening to the radio, and one of my good friends was saying that they created the Office of Hawaiian Affairs in order to control the Hawaiians, that it was a state effort to subjugate the Hawaiian people. They don't trust the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. And I had just spent three months at the Constitutional Convention, creating the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. And that wasn't the case. It was the Hawaiians trying to figure out how they're going to get 5F funds, so that, which is constitutional mandated, in order to make their lives better. So I said to myself, shit, I cannot allow this to happen after all of that work from all of those people, the people don't think it's a bad thing. So I decided to come out and run for the Office of Foreign Affairs to tell the story that it's not something that is bad, but it's something that is a tool for us to use. Even though we haven't learned how to use it yet, it's still a tool that we can use. We just need somebody to figure out how we're going to use it in the right way. And so far, it hasn't worked the way it should be working. But that's the reason I left. And sometimes I wonder if I made a good decision or not. <laughs> and right now I'm too old to go back, so live with my decisions. Um, you said that you and George Helm would go around asking Kupuna, um, where did the mana come from? So how would you answer <laughs> that question today? <sighs> I don't think we, we, we really got into the level where we could figure it out 
but Hawaiians in their pili with, with nature. Like I, I used to hunt, so I was hunting in this valley and I seen these rocks as big as, big as this, like this. And they were all lined up side by side. And I, that's one of the questions I asked the kupuna, like, how did, how did the Hawaiian line up all those huge boulders, all like line up like flush? And the answer was inch by inch. <laughs> and inch by inch with their minds, I said, what? I, I, I said, I can't, you know, no way. But they would, they would move the rocks through concentration, just little by little, and then move them into place. So I, I said, OK, there's some stories that I just not can handle. And then one day I was watching television, and they had this guy sitting, guy sitting around a table, moving this fork all over the table with their minds. And I was thinking, shit. They think they're good, man. I remember the story from the kupuna now. Thinking, you guys don't even know half the story. <laughs> so anyway, um, there were a lot of unanswered, but boy, some of those stories were pretty scary. You know, it's like the mana that they had. And for me, the answer was, it has, you, if you don't, if you're not peely with nature, not only you're not going to survive, but you're not going to really, you're not going to really know how to live in Hawaii. You know, it's like you cannot be detached on little dots in the Pacific. So the only hope we have right now is for us to figure out that we have some kuleana. You know, that at least we have responsibility, even though we don't understand it, that to protect it. And I don't, I'm not quite sure how far off the track. I'm really scared because it's not only us, right? The whole world is off kilter. You know, we've got ice caps melting, we've got acidic, all kinds of stuff going on. So I didn't get all the answers, but they're out there. At the Constitutional Convention, you know, putting all of this work into creating OHA, what, what was that like to sort of emerge from the valley again after two years and re-enter all of the, you know, the movement work, all of the politics? I took it in stride. Um, I didn't stop to think about what I was losing. I just knew that I had to win um, this vote. And in order to win, I had to be really out there aggressive and doing all this. Things. So it was like going from this serenity thing into this political thing or like day and night or night and day. Um, and I just went at it because I thought OHA was going to be critical as one of the steps for us to gain our freedom um, if we used it well. And we, so far, we're so timid about using this power that we have as Hawaiians. You know, we're like scared of something. I think we're scared that we're not going to get the money from the government, they're gonna cut our line or something. But 
it was formed with enough power to really make a difference because it's called a quasi-state agency. Now, who the hell knows what that is? Nobody knows what is a quasi-state agency. So we have in a position to, to define it the way we want to define it. The first, the first meeting we had, all the new trustees, okay, we're all in a room. And uh, talking, talking. Okay, we'll form committees. Why? Oh, because that's how they do it at the legislature. They form committees. Okay, nobody have a better idea. We form committees. We form committees. So, okay, I'm, I'll chair this committee out there. Okay, well, what, Walter, what, 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 do you, what committee are you going to have? I said, I'll take the culture committee. And they go, there's no such thing as a culture committee. I go, what do you mean there's no Nobody has a culture committee, Walter. You cannot be the chairman of a culture committee. And I knew I was in trouble. You know, it's like, oh, this is not quasi. This is full of, <laughs> you know, establishment that we're going to form. But I did. I got my culture committee. And I worked really hard on it. And I got a really nice culture plan that they put in the, in the shelf in some closet someplace. But we're going to use it here on Molokai. So the first problem we had was, what the hell is this? Who's going to come? Who's going to join? Why are they going to join? How do you tell people what's going on so that they participate? I mean, you had this whole. So that took a lot, a lot of energy. I mean, I remember being at um, Yolani Palace. So we, we brought a big uh, truck with a flatbed, put them in front of the steps of the palace, and we put microphones. And, invited entertainers and invited everybody to come and talk about what we call it VOHA, um, Vote for Office of Wine Affairs, something like that. And then each of the trustees was asked to go up there and talk. So I'm like, whoa, you know. Like as a freshman at the university, I took a speech course. So I come into this this course, and there's like 50 guys in a course for, for speech. And then each one had to go up there and, and speak. And I was in the back of the room, like I'm always in the back of the room. And it was my turn to go up and speak in front of the class. And I dropped the class. <laughs> I, I walked halfway up, and I turned out without the door. I couldn't, I was so scared, I couldn't talk. So at Ilani Palace, from one gate fence to the other fence was packed. It's like 20,000 Hawaiians at Ilani Palace. And they told me to go up on the stage <laughs> and say something. Oh, shit. I didn't know what to say. So I said, go into your phone book. And look up the word aloha in your phone book, in the yellow pages. And you can see aloha airlines, aloha carpet company, aloha, 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 all these people that are using us for their own personal monetary gains. We are being, I went off. <laughs> oh, I remember that day, I was like crazy. But I got elected. <laughs> in fact, I had the most votes of, of everybody. I wanted because of Kaho Olave and all of that stuff too. So.
So I'm curious, um, since you, you have participated both in kind of um, challenging the state and you know, Kaholavi challenging the US military, um, and then you've also done the sort of kind of politi political action through like OHA, through these kind of electoral bodies. So I guess, what do you think of those two different kinds of forms of being politically active? What is like the relationship? Because I know some people only do one or the other, you know? Yeah. So what is your perspective on that having done both? No, I think, you know, it's like, there's not only one way, there's not only one trail. You know, there's, I'm a hunter. <laughs> if I stay on one trail, my, my family's gonna go hungry. You know, I go wherever I gotta go. And from young age, I saw these signs. Couple, keep out, no trespassing. Stop, whatever. And if I paid attention to those signs, I would never be able to feed my family. So it's in me not, you know, not to listen to those crazy rules that, are, that don't make any sense. Um, so that's, like I'm trying to get, right now, I'm running as a state senator. I don't think I'm gonna make it, but I wanna let the young people know that it's a good idea. And I'm trying to, we have a, like a three-person team. One is a pretty good, she's young, but she's already a good councilwoman. And then the other one is really young, timid, smart, knows all the issues. So they asked me to go ahead and I wasn't gonna run. And I said, okay, but you guys gotta do all the work. I'm not gonna fill out papers and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it's like, you have to try all of these different avenues. Down these, don't be afraid to go down those trails. You never know what you're gonna find. You know, you're gonna survive by, by looking at all different ways of doing things. It's not only one way. And that's why it's, it's sad to see the Hawaiians. I know we had a big beef, like, hey, we're gonna go, you know, with a cockabill, we're not gonna go with that cockabill. Those things separate you. And you can't help it. One, the other side feels threatened by the other side. But even, you know, listening to the kupuna, they have, we had all different, different islands had different ways of doing things. So, from where we started to today, we've made great progress. People, a lot of people haven't been able to see it, but I'm like, Okay, I'm 76 years old, I can see the difference. There's tremendous difference from where we started to where we are today. And it's just gonna get better and better. You know, it's like, it's gonna happen. And I, I, I'm hoping I can, I can see it really seriously happen before I die, but, and I think that might happen. You know, the way things are moving, how fast it's almost like you start really slow, and then it just picks up speed as you go along. And the guys who are here think it's slow. The guys who are here think, wow, we're moving along pretty good. So it's a matter of, of timing, but I, I feel pretty good about how things are going. You, know? you, can't, you can't stop this momentum anymore. You can slow it down if, if you try, but 
if we get a Hawaiian governor this term, it's going to speed it up a lot. Because this guy, but he's too dangerous. They're going to spit him out. And I think same with me. I think I'm a little bit too dangerous. And they spit me out last time when I was running for the House. I saw a Democratic Party at its worst. I mean, it was. It was really bad. These, these precincts that they have, the base of the party, oh, man. On this island, okay, the island that I live, I didn't get one single precinct vote. They just organized the whole bottom, and I couldn't get All I needed was one vote to get my name into the governor out of the three names that was going up. And that opened my eyes, like, holy smokes, this thing is. But it's the only game in, in town. So I've learned how they did it. <laughs> I'm going to make sure it's not going to happen again. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's slow. But the young people, the key that young people got to realize is that they have the tools to get to the truth. They can actually track down the truth without anybody telling them what the truth is. That's, that's power, man. If you can get to the truth on your own, then we have a chance of surviving. You know, they can't hide it any longer. The tools that the young people have now to get to the truth, that's what's gonna, that's what's gonna win. What is your vision of the future and, and what you want or hope to see happen, you know, in your lifetime or where, where it's headed? Right now, I've narrowed down my vision. We started working in a fish pond and Kalani was got that one pretty much going. He understands the pond. Then we came to the farmland. We had to knock down all of the invasives and kelby trees and we really worked hard to open it up so we could feed ourselves, and at the same time feed the pond with all the peelings from the taro and the sweet potato and the ulu. And then we're now looking Malka. So Malka was giving us big time problems because the soil was washing down during the rainy season, killing all our baby fish, filling up the pond, putting dirt on the reef. It was horrors. So, our next move is we're going to go Mauka. So what that tells me is that the genius of the Hawaiians was the ahupua'a. If you only take care of this, and you don't take care of the whole ahupua'a, you're not going to survive. We're not going to survive. So we have to believe that the Hawaiians knew what they were doing when they created these self-sustaining, independent units called ahupua'a. We have about 60 of them on this island. So if each one was independent. Why why do you need the barges? You know, I mean, so that's that's where I'm at right now. That's like my number one. If I get into the politics or whatever, that's gonna be my mantra is like even Kamehameha schools, they own this Ahupuala. Took us ten years to get them to work with us. So I kept telling them, dala dala, dala dala. For every dollar we go get, you guys got to come up with a dollar to fix this ahupua. 
They said, oh, Walter, that's not how we operate. You lease the land. We use the money from your lease to pay for the education. I said, not this time. Because your land, you have kuleana in your land, and you fucked up big time because it's killing the, the makai. So we brought over the, you know, we talked to the land manager, nothing. This is high rocky, you got to go up. So we finally got to the top. And now they're listening. And they say, OK, we're going to dollar, dollar. So what do we get for the dollar? So we sent in a report about how we're going to stop all the soil from coming down, all of the things that we're going to do. So if we, for me, that's like my last hurrah, you know, it's like getting the units so we can all be self-sustaining. And once we become self-sustaining, it's hard to tell people what to do when they're self-sustaining, you know? But if they're begging, you can tell them what to do. Thank you so much for sharing all of these, these stories today. Is there anything else that you want to add or other things that you want to no, talk about? No, no I, I think I'm burnt out. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Uncle Walter. Right on. Hawaii Rising is a podcast from the Hawaii People's Fund produced by me. And me. With additional support from... Mickey! Our theme music is Revolutionary from the band Ukla the Mock, written and sung by Mickey Hui Hui. Thank you to our community donors and to you, our audience, for listening. Ahui ho! Done.